Today's episode contains explicit language and conversations around sex, human anatomy, menstruation, and personal experiences. We advise that you don't listen to this in the company of little ones or anyone who may be uncomfortable with these topics. Hey, sugars, come on in and take a seat. You're listening to The Honey Potluck, a podcast about sex, health, and thriving. I'm your host, B. Dixon, co-founder and CEO of The Honey Pot Company. And I'm your other host, Javon Alfieri, The Honey Pot's director of digital. Ooh, now let's dig in. Welcome back to part two, everybody. Super excited to have this conversation. Hi, Gigi. Hi, V. How's it going? Good, good, good. So last week, we kind of introduced Erica and Janet, really amazing humans. You know, we kind of got into the conversation of talking about kink, what that means, you know, talking about how we relate to each other and all these different types of ways of having relationships and adventures and all the things. So I'm super excited to talk about the second part where we're more so talking about the boundaries of how we exercise our kink. Yeah. This is a great conversation because it really comes back to this idea of self-preservation, self-love. And and, and I know we touched on this in the, in the last you know conversation as well, but I think that being in charge of yourself in so many facets of life is exhausting. Then having to do that in sex sometimes too can either feel like a source of immense joy or just another fucking burden. That also parlays nicely into like the label conversation. It's like, oh damn, just another label I have to acquire. Right. You know, what I think is really important from this conversation that I'm so excited to to kind of expound upon is a few things is like the clear cut to some extent differentiation between sensuality and sexuality, mm. right? Those have to be considered as separate. One again kind of is this living breathing identity that is policed and managed by the outer society. And sensuality is kind of that deep dark drive and desire that exists in each and every one of us. And I think that identification or not that we have to continue to create divides or more words to describe these things, but just understanding that those things flex a little differently. They do. Sexuality feels very masculine. It feels like you're working for it. Sensuality just feels, it feels like what you are and what you do, you know? Right. And Erica is sort of at the helm of this idea of empowered sexuality. And she almost distills it down to this thing like, what does your body need? Do you need water? Do you have access to clean water, right? Like Mm. all of these things that give you potentially the freedom to be kinky. Like in so many circumstances, sex is sex is sex, right? It's not, not only can it be weaponized for obvious reasons, but like, It is about procreation. It is about like economic advances, things like that. Mm -hmm. So we actually have so much freedom and privilege that we're also undermining that. Right. And so I thought that that was just such a great way for us to start getting into the nuances of sex, the nuances of this life with sex as an expression, right? 
and kind of kink being this like sort of overarching theme or message. The other thing B is I'm sure you can imagine, because we've also explored this with other amazing guests, is that surprise, surprise, shame came up. Yeah, of course it does. How can you have a conversation about any of these things and shame not come up? Right. It's almost at the base of the of the creation of the word, right? Totally. Also, don't you think it's the most, like, shared human feeling? Sister, shame, guilt, trauma, embarrassment. These are all the things that bring us together and make us one because we're all feeling it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wanted to make sure that I was being authentic in my shame around sex specifically or also, frankly, just being in my body. And I hope that that invites listeners to understand that, like, we all have it in different ways. Like, even when you have pronounced sexual prowess and you feel really confident in sexual environments or are moreover seeking out uh, sexual experiences, that with that still comes some level of shame, right? It's not always it like easy peasy, oh yeah, I'm in cr- control, I did this because I own this shit. Like, you're still at the behest of human emotions and it can be volatile, right? Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect segue for us to get into our conversation with Janet and Erica. Pick back up, learn more, get into the nitty gritty of kink, shame, sex, all of that good stuff. So I can't wait to, I can't wait for you to hear more in this episode. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Erica Hart and Janet Hardy, two incredibly talented writers, activists, and educators. Join us to hear a continuation of our discussion around kink and exploring the boundaries of our desire. One of the things that started to kind of blossom in my mind and 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 not to suggest that it's by any means the correct frame of thought was that it actually started to feel kind of like people were really grasping at binaries, right? And something that became relatively noticeable to me as I was evolving both as a human and then kind of watching the collective evolve as well is just certain descriptors that became very prominent in these short bios of various humans. So whether that was, you know, leaning into kind of ethical non-monogamy, kind of very detailed explanations or um, labels for their kinks and sexual preferences. And so whereas I had always viewed sex as kind of limitless and 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 there being no boundaries and that it started to kind of feel like there were limitations and that I was having boundaries with whom I was engaging with or whom I would consider connection with. So how can we go about sort of maybe deconstructing some of those harmful associations we might have with those labels? And then moreover, kind of on the other side of that, what the actual value and importance of those labels or that, you know, level of communication is. Um, As both a writer and as an educator, I'm a huge fan of verbs. Verbs rock. Uh, Nouns can sometimes get in your way. So when I'm talking about my own sexuality, I prefer to say, I like this and this and this. I'm not too wild about this and this and this. And then we can go from there without getting locked into the kinds of labels that, that you're concerned about. Labels are useful politically. You know, if we all have the umbrella of gay or queer or whatnot to stand under, then we can show the world how many of us 
there are and how much power we hold. But when they become a problem is when they become prescriptive. When all of a sudden you're saying, I'm not the kind of person who, whatever's, I'm not the kind of person who ever has sex with men because I am a lesbian, then it's prescriptive. Whereas I've never really had sex with men. I don't know much about it, but you never know. I'm young. The future holds many mysterious things. It could happen. And that way you can kind of launch into the world without having all these labels dragging you down. I think that that's been my impression of of interacting with them. But nonetheless, I also think that because there is perhaps this drive towards some kind of deconstruction, some kind of reimagination that people are, you know, more apt or inclined to start defining themselves as ethically non-monogamous or having any number, you know, of kinks at the forefront. This notion of sort of empowered sexuality and empowered decision-making. And I would love to hear a bit more about what that looks like or what does that feel like without that sort of abuse of power, abuse of labeling, um, and, and really being able to embody and lean into that. It's hard to say, considering, we, you know, we live in a white supremacist police state, right? That can't be separated from our sexuality. It has to be something that's considered. So I think, is it truly possible to have an empowered sexuality considering the structures that we navigate, right? I think having an understanding of those systems, how they play a role in your life, how you yourself has inherited views of what your body should look like around fat phobia, around ableism, racism, classism, right? Those are all functions I think if anything, if it's going to be empowered is that you have an understanding and distinguish those inherited thoughts. And it doesn't mean that they've gone away, but that you can actually identify them and be able to speak them when they are impacting you. And not just, you know, in the act of sex, right? Or in the act of quote unquote body image or whatever that might be body um, exploration, but also in the work that you do, right? Are you resting or are you constantly working um, because, you know, you have been related to, like your body is a function of uh, production and that's the only way that it's valued for worth, right? So are do you have that? Are you working on that as well? Because that would impact your access to sexuality. If you're tired as hell, it's not, you're not actually going to be able to have a really good orgasm. I've tried to masturbate when I was like exhausted and it just did not work. I just went to sleep. <laughs> it's virtually impossible. Right. Like that is what my body needed. It was demanding for me to take care of my body in a way of rest, right? Do you need water? Do you, right? Do you have access to clean water? Like these are all things that I think about in terms of an empowered sexuality. And I just don't think that it's individually based. I think it's societally based. I think our structures socially truly impact us as people being able to access some sort of empowered sexuality. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's beautifully said. And that is, you know, kind of what you're hinting at or actually saying quite blatantly is this sort of intersectional nature of both identity and expression and how that happens. And also what you're hinting at is the somatic experience of living in a body, which is a clitoris, for example, has nerve endings. So if the rest of your body is failing and or you are not engaged or, you know, well rested, then of course that part of your body isn't going to be able to respond in a way that is pleasurable, right? And it it starts to feel more of that kind of like daunting chore or back to, um, 
um, kind of the roles that we think we have to satisfy in the realm of sexuality. So I think that that's really poignant. Um, I think that, you know, the power of the ethical slut in a lot of ways is that the foundation of it is sort of this this self-empowerment and then what it looks like to be in relation to other humans in a very dynamic and broad way or in a, um, you know, personally defined way. So I would love to kind of hear your thoughts on that relationship between, you know, the self and exploration as well. It is, as Erica says, extremely complicated to figure out what your sex life is going to look like in a world that wants to tell you what your sex life is going to look like. One of the um, minorities that we've not yet discussed, I am old, which means that people assume certain things about my availability uh, and what my sex life is like, which may or may not be true. One of the hardest comings out I have had in a lifetime of comings out was when I came out as someone who has not had genital sex in many years. That's still a hard thing to say, especially if you do for a living what I do for a living. When I did that, I was not sure whether I was tanking my career. As it turns out, people really like to hear that that is an option. I've lost count of how many women have said, can I ask you something? If, if I don't feel like sex anymore, is, is something wrong? No, darling, you don't feel like sex anymore. That's not wrong. That's what's happening. So part, part of what an empowered sexuality has to have is to say, no, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. Again, I'm not going to label myself asexual because tomorrow morning I may wake up horny and look at someone who looks good and go, huh, I think I've changed my mind. Uh, So far it hasn't happened, but you know, I've got another 20, 30 years on the planet. It still might. The other thing is that when, as women, we are expected to be the sexual gatekeepers in our culture, and that still is plugged really, really deep. It's still assumed that men are the ones who are going to be turning on the green light and women are the ones who are going to be turning on the red light. And it can be very difficult to untangle that from your actual desires. When someone is pounding on your boundaries every minute of every day, letting them in, letting the right person in, when you've had almost no experience with saying yes, or with saying yes that you actually want rather than saying yes because they're being a pain in the ass or because you think you ought to or because all the cool girls are having sex or whatever. How do you figure out what an authentic yes feels like to you? That's a life's work, really. We're also combating two things here, which is one is the internalized shame that we hold, whether it's purely from the like curiosity of like, oh my God, that would be so fun. Or I have this, you know, deep seated desire or what have you like this, you know, kind of this reconciling of like the internalized shame and then the the cultural slut shaming or the cultural sexual shaming that is imposed on us in a multitude of ways. And, and much to your, you know, many points, Erica, would be um, lived very differently based upon other intersectional elements of your identity. But what I would really like to focus on for a second is just kind of this like, you know, broader notion of shame and then what it means to start working through that with, again, this, this you know, primary driver of, of being empowered and kind of living in your truth and, and, and not being fearful of exploration. I mean, I think they're very much connected, you know, the cultural expectations on your sexuality and how you then inherit them are, you know, one, they're, they're connected, right? They don't, they all come from something. And again, I think that that's the freedom in getting free from it. Um, for a long time, I thought, 
because I'm femme, I don't identify as a woman. I identify as non-binary. But because I'm femme, I am supposed to wait for someone to initiate sex with me, right? I am not supposed to initiate. It is supposed to be the masculine person or the masculine, quote-unquote, of center person, but not me, someone that is more masculine than I am, even though I dabble in masculinity as well. But anyway, but that isn't something that I'm supposed to do, right? So I think that understanding that that comes from a very pilgrim <laughs> contrived version of what how we are supposed to be in sex that a you know cisgender woman is just supposed to lay there and whenever a cisgender man is interested gets off and then that's the end of it I was carrying that in my queer relationships as well right like okay you want to have sex okay great let's have sex like not getting that I get to actually say when I want to have sex but also if I want to be submissive that is also okay but I need to name it as something I'm consensually doing, not something I'm doing because I've been told to do it by the world. Um, So I think that's a lot of freedom is understanding that all of this shit is made up. (laughs) Like, it's all made up. Like, you get to make it how you want to make it. And I think when people are following the social cues of the world, that is oftentimes not necessarily your creation. You're just doing what you've been told. It may be comfortable, but is there something that you could potentially be exploring there um, about your life, about your body, about your sex life, uh, about your sensuality, about how you access pleasure, right? How expansive could we get? Like how imaginative could we be about pleasure if colonization never existed, right? Like that is a question that I'm like, oh, yes, let's talk about it, right? Like we are all... (laughs) We're all impacted by colonialism, right? It's not just marginalized communities. White people are as well, right? And I think having those discussions is necessary within, not necessarily with Black people, but white people talking about it with themselves. And you get what I'm saying. Did you experience shame, though, when you started asserting, my brain has a hard time, like, justifying this as masculine, but whatever. Like, when you started asserting or asking for the things that you wanted or pursuing them, did that manifest as shame for you? Or were you like able to be like, fuck that, this is actually what I want, so it's irrelevant? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the first few times that I did it, I'm I'm running through my head, like, did I really just do that? But I feel like even now, when I initiate, there's still those thoughts, right? Like, I don't want to make it seem like I've arrived somewhere, right? Mm. Like, we all are working <laughs> through these thoughts all the time. The neighborhoods in my brain are sometimes very dangerous, very places you don't need to be, right? So I'm, you know, I'm freaking out out sometimes. You know, I may feel very empowered 10 minutes ago and then now I'm just like I'm I'm a mess, you know, and I think that's also back to the conversation around consent. That's the beauty of consent because it's, you know, it's all the time you're checking in. Um it's not something that yes, you said yes an hour ago and it's still yes now, right? It's all it's ongoing like to be checking in about where you're feeling and what's going on with you. Um and maybe you're not interested in initiating anymore, right? 
right? Maybe now I don't want to initiate. I just want to, you know, be submissive. And that's what that looks like to me. And I want to say when this is over and, or I want to say when we keep going, whatever it is. Um, But I think those thoughts are always there. And that doesn't mean that you're not empowered, right? It just means that the thoughts are there and you have them distinguished um, and you're ready to talk about them. I think for me, a lot of my shame actually comes from being hypersexualized. A lot of being in my own body, less, you know, sort of the way I show up in the world, but certain elements of my physical body have um, produced a lot of shame for, shame for me when it comes to sex because or, or a lack of ownership because of the way that it's perceived. And so I think that for me, I'm always trying to kind of reconcile having sexual prowess and being in it and owning it whilst also feeling like every part of my body in those moments can be kind of sexualized or minimized. And so I, I do think a lot about that and and personally, and I think that that's a very shared experience, um, also part of the human dynamic. But I do think that that often is like really complex for me. And I really just want to like look men in their face and be like, this isn't you. <laughs> so sorry. Like I actually have, this is all like in me, I have this power and, and kind of be able to, you know, your point, Erica, have that reclamation as well and say like, no, actually I'm in ownership of this. I decided that this was happening. Um, so I did want to just kind of close off that thread <laughs> with a personal anecdote and, and, and say selfishly that that reconciliation of, of the, you know, outward shame and internal is one that I'm also kind of constantly on a journey trying to, to kind of de construct or better understand. So anywho, I don't know if you guys have any closing thoughts or anything that you want to share with us, but this has been such a fruitful conversation and and I'm so deeply appreciative of each of your point of views. One of my observations through, what, 30 years now of being a sex educator is the stuff that really gets people angry with you is not that you do this, it's that you refuse to be ashamed of it. So it's really good to get out there in the world and not be ashamed of it because people will try. They will try really hard and you just can't let that happen. I would say don't think that systems of oppression do not impact your pleasure and your access to pleasure because they absolutely do. And we live in a world that loves to say intersectionality, but doesn't actually get that it is at play all the time. Um, And that the intersections of your identity play a profound role in your access to pleasure um, in this country. So, you know, looking at what are your inherited thoughts about your body and the people that you're attracted to or not attracted to is revolutionary work. Right. The freedom there to, you know, distinguish colonized thoughts from this is a created thought or this is a a generated thought is really uh, liberatory. So wonderful. <laughs> I love this. Um, I, this this morphed into not only a beautiful discourse, but but a, a personal journey for me. So thank you both so much for, for your time. Thank you. Absolutely. Wow, Gigi, (laughs) this was a really insightful conversation. I think that Erica and Janet really mean it. And as it relates to what they do, they are very much in it. Like it's a real thing for them. What was your biggest takeaway for the listeners who will listen to this episode? And what, and even bigger than that, what was the biggest takeaway for you? Yeah, So I think the biggest takeaway that I want our listeners to walk away with from this journey is really just the reality that 
Nothing we do as humans on this planet is one size fits all, even more so specifically sex, right? Sex is intended to be an outlet. It is intended to be another level of expression, of creativity, of connection. And so I I know that I specifically as a human on this planet cannot break down or reverse the shame of every single person. However, I hope that these can be introductions to that work and what it means to look at things almost objectively and have freedom and put yourself at the center of everything that you do. If working through shame or sexualized shame is a very long road for you, at the very least, not having shame that you have shame, Mm -hmm. right? Like being able to simply acknowledge that like you like sex or that sex is this black box and there's still a ton of question marks around it, but you're eager to deconstruct it. Even if it takes you years upon years, right? For myself, I think that, I think because the genesis of this conversation really came from my own experiences as a single human navigating the world, my own experiences as a sexually dynamic person, as a sexually curious person, as I said in the first episode, what I like to call vanilla (laughs) extract. Um, The reason I say vanilla extract is because I really, really, really like connection. To me, connection is so sexy. And believe it or not, just as, you know, finding humans in the kink community can be challenging or whatever, finding someone with whom you have connection with in order to have the dopest vanilla sex ever is just as hard. It is. So that's the vanilla side of it where it's like connection, connection, connection. And the extract side of it is that like you can do whatever you want and it's malleable. The flavor stays the same, but it's adapting and it's trying new things. And so that to me is like I would be comfortable saying that my kink is being vanilla extract. (laughs) My kink is connection. My kink is feeling something in the depths of my soul. Yeah, I'm good with that. So B, if our listeners were curious, like I am on establishing, you know, how how to explore and or what the boundaries of their desire are, what is some advice you might give them? I think it's really important to tap into yourself and to be truly honest and conscious of what you want and why you want it. I think it's also very important for us to look at ourselves and how... How have we contributed to the poison of shame? Because we spend our time shaming. Normally, when you're shaming somebody else, it's because you have shamed yourself. You know, so I think it's really important for us to look at ourselves, look at the judgments that we cast, feel how that would feel if somebody was to put that judgment on you or that shame on you. It's so easy to do it. It's not very easy when you're the, when you're the receiver. And I also think that it's important to understand what you truly want and to not repress it. Be who the f*** you are, man. Like, it's, it's okay, you know, because there's somebody out there for everybody. I think that would be my advice, you know, is get honest, get real with yourself and take care of yourself and worry about your shit. Don't worry about nobody else. I think that was so beautifully put, B. And also, to me, if there is any space in your life to be selfish, (laughs) it is when it comes to 
your body, your sexual desires, your sexual needs. Like, I know being selfish is something we all are conditioned to think is nasty or is somehow um, is somehow antithetical to being human or is not kind or whatever, but it actually is like self-preservation, like we've said multiple times. But I think I think that was so perfectly put. And like, again, I would just urge you, like, if it's hard for you to be selfish in other parts of your life, maybe this is a great avenue for you to try. It is. And, and be real with yourself. Because we have to really tap into ourselves and really get real with ourselves, and really get real and responsible with our bodies and our energy and in our part, our body parts with, with the penises, with the vaginas, with however you choose to, to do it, to use it. Be responsible with it because there's so much connection and power that goes between these body parts. Unless we really start giving that the respect and honor. And I'm not, when I say respect and honor, that doesn't mean I'm saying wait until you get married or some bullshit like that. It just means doing it because that's what you really, really, you're intimately, divinely connected into it. And it's really what you want to do. That's when you're going to get a real result. I echo that fully and couldn't have said it better myself. So thank you, B. I am just happy that you've absorbed these nuggets. And that leaves me feeling so, so good that all of the humans that we love and cherish and who listen to this podcast are also going to be able to ingest and live by this. So immensely grateful for you. Thank you for giving me a solo pod, Um, but also to each and every one of our listeners. um, We love you so much. We mean it. Thank you for being here on another episode of The Honey Potluck. Thanks for listening to The Honey Potluck, a podcast by The Honey Pot Company made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, B. Dixon. And I'm your co-host, Javon Alfieri. We're so grateful to have you here. We love you. Mean it. Thoughts and experiences recounted in this episode are hosts' own. Our producers are Alana Herlins and Nathan Tower. Laura Boyman is our associate producer. Sydney Evans is our dialogue editor and mixer. A major thank you to everyone who makes this podcast possible. 